The scripture that Joel will be teaching from today is Acts 2, verses 32 through 41, page 969 in the Blue Bibles. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were, out, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. All right, so we are in part three of uh, this Acts series. You mind if I move your papers? Is that all right, John? Um, we need to get more music stands. That's just a must. Uh, part part three of Acts this morning, and uh, we're calling this, this series The Unstoppable Church, and I think this morning you're going to uh, continue to see, to see why, to see why we're calling it Unstoppable. Um, and a uh, quick, quick word before we get into this, uh, we're, summer is a great time to experiment a little bit and kind of change things up and try new things. And uh, so we are going to experiment a little bit this morning and maybe throughout the rest of the summer with a reflection time um, after, after, the, uh, after this. It's, we're going to call it five-minute reflection, so that way it doesn't turn into 55-minute reflection, though it may, I guess, if the spirit moves just right. And, uh, but we're going to call it five-minute reflection. It's just a time to, uh, to ask me any questions, if there's any clarifications or theological questions that you may have about the passage or what I said. Uh, it's a time to reflect on how God is moving in you and, uh, and just kind of voice that and think about that together as a community. So just kind of keep that in mind as we dive in this morning. And if there is anything, that, any questions that you may have that sticks out, just make a note of it. Um, I, I want you guys to do this with me. Imagine, uh, if you, uh, imagine that you were part of this original 120. The, uh, you, were, you were there when, when Christ walked this earth and you heard his teachings and, uh, and, he, and he looked at you and he, and he said things to you just personally, literally. Can you imagine that? And then you saw him led to the cross and you were there as he was crucified. Uh, you were there after his resurrection and you, you witnessed his, his resurrected body and he walked with you for a time and, and he spoke with you and he taught things to you and it just completely transformed your life. Uh, you were there when he, when he looked at the 120 and he said, go into all the world and make disciples. 
go everywhere and make disciples. And then he said, but wait, don't go yet because you don't yet have what it takes. And he says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to give you power to, to carry this out. And then you see, you're, you're there as he ascends. He, he goes to heaven and he, he leaves you. And now you're with the other 119 together in, in a room, a big room, maybe a room this size. And, uh, and you're all gathering together and it's, it's, uh, you're praying constantly, uh, you're, you're wondering, you're waiting together, you're eating together, uh, you're dreaming of, of what the next, what's, what's next, what the Spirit's move might be like and what this means for everybody in the room. And it's intimate and it's beautiful and it's almost haunting at the same time and everybody's together. And then that day of Pentecost comes. And out of nowhere, the Spirit just pours down on you in, uh, with wind and fire and it's, it's this explosion of God's Spirit on humanity. And, and, and you're observing this as some of the 120, some of you guys start speaking in languages that you don't know. And, and there are crowds now that gather 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 people possibly, 12,000 people maybe, that gather to see what's going on. And everybody, all these foreigners, people from different languages, different ethnicities, different countries, they're all hearing the wonders of God proclaimed in their language by you guys. And you're just blown away by it. And then, as that day goes on, there are, the day before, you're sitting in a room, Get this picture. You're sitting in a room, 120 of you, waiting on the Spirit to move. And the next day, 3,000 people are added to your number. Can you imagine just that, this excitement, the confusion, the craziness. And these aren't 3,000 people that are like you. These are 3,000 people from different countries. They speak different languages, different ethnicities. And, and all of a sudden, this little thing, the day the Spirit comes, the very day the Spirit comes, this little thing explodes. Can you imagine? What would be your thoughts? Does anybody, any, anyone want to share? This is real. This is real, yeah. Confirmation. Yeah. Here's the thing is <clears throat> there was nothing that they did differently to bring about 3,000 people coming to Christ, massive explosion of, of, the, of the church and this, this new beginning. There was nothing that they did other than waiting, you could say, completely relying on the Spirit of God. And then in God's timing, when the Spirit moved, things happened. And, and for us as a church, when we, as, we, as we think about what, it, what it's going to look like over the years to make a difference in Baltimore and to, to see a city that's hurting in so many ways transformed, our place right now in, in a lot of ways is just waiting for the Spirit to move. We can do nothing uh, on our own power until the Spirit in a supernatural way moves through us, moves through the city, and people are changed. And, and my goal as a community is that we're, like, like these folks, the original 120 that are just waiting, that we're just faithful in that. That we don't, we don't try to bring anything out on our own power, in our own accord, in our own timing. That we are just simply faithful to what God's called us to. 
with, with complete recognition that he is moving, that he's moving in, in many parts of the world in phenomenal ways, and we are praying and begging God to do a sweeping movement through Baltimore and see some real revival. I think we should just call it revival. It's kind of a word that I think we need to dust off, don't you think? Like, bring it back, revival. It's more than a tent. It's more than five days preaching. It's a, it's a movement of God in which thousands are transformed and their eyes are opened and, and churches are planted and, and uh, gatherings spring up all over the place. So what, we wanna, what I want to do today is dive into this passage here where we see this unfold and specifically look at sort of the why behind all of this. And uh, the spirit, we're going to completely say that that is the foundation here. Uh, the Holy Spirit's power and movement. And I want to look at specifically how the Spirit moved in these 3,000 individuals and what it was that sort of caught their attention and opened their eyes and brought about transformation in their life. So, cool? You with me? Is anybody with me? Can I get a yes? Can I get a mm mm-hmm? All right. Craziness, languages, everybody's like, thousands and thousands of people are, are hearing the wonders of God proclaimed in their own language. Some of them ask, what does this mean? Others of them mock. Others, others of them, a little tongue twister there, it's a tough word to say, others, a tough phrase. Others of them, try it ten times. They, they mock, they, they're like, they write it off, they can't, they, it's going to mean too much for them to to ask the question, what does this mean? And so they write it off and they mock it and they probably walk away. And then for those, those however many thousand now are left, asking, what does this mean? They want to know more. You select Peter, maybe because he has the strongest voice, maybe because he uh, walked with Jesus the most, maybe because he has the f- deepest understanding of the scriptures, for whatever reason, you select Peter to stand up. Now, we've, we've, we've had this, the, these physical signs uh, of something happening here. And now Peter has been selected to stand up and basically give a sermon and address the crowd, thousands of people, and, and explain what's going on. And what he does, the way he does it, is he goes through their own scriptures. He goes through what we now call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. And he, he begins pointing out how all along, all along, in our own scriptures, in the Old Testament, all along, everything has been pointing towards Christ. This is not something that's new. This isn't a, this isn't a new religion or a, it's not something that's like springing up that's just kind of crazy and out of the blue. But this has been planned out by God from the very beginning and we see it in our own scriptures. And so there's like this sort of supernatural signs that they're seeing and now he's, he dives in uh, with, uh, with basically an intellectual sort of argument as to what's going on. And so they've got the witnesses, they've got the people who are like literally saying, we, we walked with Christ, we saw him rose from, risen from the dead, ask any of us, we, we're all going to testify to it. They've got these supernatural outward signs now of, of, of speaking in different languages and now he's going to dive into the Old Testament and he's going to give them sort of more of an intellectual sort of understanding within their own scriptures of how Christ was, ha, has always been seen. And, uh, 
So look at, look, at, um, look at verse 29. He uses David as an example. I just want to give you this as an example. Um, verse 29, brothers, he says, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here today. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place uh, one, of his, one of his descendants on, on the, his throne. I can't read this morning. Verse 31, seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. And just a little bit before that, he quotes one of the Psalms where David says, well, I'll read it to you. He says, therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave. Why did David think that? Thousands of years before Christ, why did David have this idea that God is not going to abandon him to the grave? The next line, he says, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. So this is the, thousands of years before the Holy One came. And, and David, he, he can't quite clearly see it. Maybe he can't quite name it. But he, he, there's something there. God is giving him this, this picture that there is this Holy One coming. And this Holy One will in some fashion die. But his body will not see decay. And therefore David's heart is glad and his tongue rejoices. And his body has, has, has joy because because he knows that God will not let him see decay, that there is going to be some sort of resurrection. And then he goes on, Peter goes on in, in this uh, sermon. God has raised uh, this Jesus to life, he says in verse 32, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received the from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see now and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven and, and yet he said, and look at this quote from the Psalms. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Wrap your minds around this. Thousands of years before Christ came, David, it, firmly rooted in, in this Jewish monotheistic religion, says, writes, and this, this is their greatest king, uh, a lover of God, a psalter, man after God's own heart. He says, the Lord said to my Lord. Like, just think about that. Like, not knowing what we know now. Try to take your mind back. The Lord said to my Lord. God said to my God. Like, David saw something coming that he couldn't quite wrap his mind around, but he, he saw it. And so now here, Peter's like taking it. He's like, this is, what he, this is everything that David was talking about. This is what Joel was talking about. Great prophet, by the way, isn't he, Joel? Uh, he quotes Joel. Why didn't I preach from that this morning? I just thought of that, man. Um, and he's like, look, this is, this is what we've been looking forward to all along. If, if this were a movie, I think, if this was like shot as a movie, I think at this point, and nobody shoot this as a movie, it'd be really cheesy if somebody did. Um, unless Mel Gibson did it, right? He, um, just kidding. If this was a movie, I think uh, it would maybe pan the thousands at this point, and everybody would just be like awestruck. They, they would be thinking, they would be wondering, they would be pe putting pieces together. They would be thinking about the scriptures, they'd be thinking about what they're their fathers told them. They would be thinking about their Passover meal. They'd be thinking about all these things and thinking like, whoa, like some, something is happening here. Something huge is happening here. And then in first, verse 36, Peter 
throws down the gauntlet and uh, chops off some heads. All right, here we go. Verse 36, therefore, he says, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You crucified Christ. You crucified Christ, and God has made him Lord and Christ. Now, let me ask you this question. How would you feel if someone came along with this accusation, you crucified Christ? And not like in some sort of spiritual metaphor, but like literally they're looking at you and they're angry, like their, their face is getting red and veins are popping out of their neck and they're like, you crucified Christ. You'd be like, yo, I wasn't even bo born. I was, I'm eating a hamburger. You know, like, <laughs> what are you talking about? I crucified Christ. Like, but, and, and Peter says this to thousands. 3,000 are added to their number. I don't think everyone was added. I, I don't think, think 3,000 is all that was there. I'm sure there were many that walked away. Probably many more than 3,000 walked away. Maybe 6,000, maybe 10,000 people were there. Some, some theologians believe it was as many as 12,000 people listening to, this, listening to this. And he's looking at all this massive crowd and he's saying, you crucified Christ. Now, how can he say that? Because these people, you know, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. They probably would have the same reaction that you might. Like, you know, I was, I'm, I'm a Parthenian. I was, I was in Mesopotamia eating... Couscous, you know? I, there's no way. Like, how can you throw this accusation on me? I crucified Christ? But it doesn't bother Peter. You know, P Peter knows that not every one of these people were, was there and took a turn swinging the hammer, knocking a, you know, nailing the, the stake into Jesus' wrists and his feet. You know, they weren't even all part of the crowd that condemned Jesus. It was impossible. They're, they're from all over. But it doesn't bother Peter at all. And, he's, and he still looks at them, and, he, and I think he looks at you, and he says, you crucified Christ, and his blood is on you. Now, if, if anything would wake us up with, with just, just to wonder, it's that, I think. I mean, that's, that's quite an accusation, isn't it? It's a huge accusation. And, and here it is. It's not, the, it's not the act of, of putting a nail into Jesus that was the sin. It's not simply the act of, of um, putting a crown on his head or, or mocking him or nailing his feet or hoisting up the cross and knocking, dropping the cross into the ground that was the greatest sin. The greatest sin in the crucifixion of Christ is the fact that the light the, or the word became flesh and dwelt among us and the world did not recognize him. The world did not recognize God in Jesus. They did not, the world did not embrace God in Jesus. God was among us. He was flesh. He was human. And the world knew him not and crucified him. And he's looking at these thousands of people and he says, you, you have committed the exact same crime that crucified Jesus. You did not embrace God in him. You have sought gods elsewhere. You've, you've looked for your hope, for your, for your comfort in other places. 
And at this, the people freeze. And I think if it was a movie, there would just be this long, <laughs> awkward pause right now as, as people just freeze and think. And as it just, this, this accusation just starts to sort of slowly sink in. And then look at their response in verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now, this, this word cut right there, it's, it's used nowhere else in the New Testament. It's a word that, that well, heart. We, we, do, we, do we understand what heart is in the Jewish imagination? It's sort of the very core of your soul. It's the center of your being. It's, it's, it's who you are. It's your emotions. And this word cut, is, it's, it could be translated pierce, as if you took a spear and you just jammed it, you rammed it through the heart right there. It's, just, it's a very violent sort of word. And it says, when they heard this, and, and this is setting in, it's sinking in, they crucified Christ, their Lord and Savior. It says that they were cut to the heart. And it, it's, it's, it's a phrase that draws up the image of absolute great grief. Terrible grieving. Why? Why, why would they be cut to the heart? Why, why would they be grieving in such a profound way, in such a deep way? Look at verse 36, going back a verse. Let, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. They, what, what I believe is sinking into their heads right now is the fact that they crucified their Lord and Christ. Lord meaning the, the, the master of the universe, um, not He-Man, Jesus, uh, the, the ruler of all things, God. The, the, I'm, it would also bring up this idea of Caesar, the lordship of Caesar, the ruler. And, and so Caesar's not Lord, but, but Christ is Lord. And you think Caesar is powerful, you've never seen the power of Christ yet. I mean, it's, it's beyond your comprehension. The, the very the Lord of the world, your Lord, was, was here. Your ruler was here. And you completely ignored him and you crucified him. Your Savior, Christ, this, this idea, Christ is another word for Messiah. It's not, it's not just a, uh, it's not Jesus' last name. It, it's, it's Messiah, the Christ, the Messiah. Their, their, their hope, the hope of their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers and the hope of their children, the only hope they had as a nation, the only hope that the world has, was here. Now, think about this. This, is, this, is, this, this. this looking for the Christ has completely wrapped up all of, all of their being and their attention and their focus. And what they're realizing through, through both the signs, through the witnesses, and now through this intellectual argument is that, is that the Christ, our only hope, was here and we killed him. That's dreadful. That's terrible. It's unreversible. I try to put myself into the mindset of, of a first century sort of person listening to this. And I think, like, like first of all, my first thought is, like, I, I can only imagine the sort of tales that they may have heard from Greek mythology or some, uh, of maybe a god who would come into the flesh. I mean, can you imagine a god coming into the flesh and the world not recognizing that god and killing that god? And by the way, that god is still alive and he's coming back. 
Is that a happy thought? It's like, no, that's, that's, that's haunting. It's a terrible thought. And they're pierced to their heart. This, this, this Jesus, who you crucified, is the ruler, and he's coming back. He's still alive. And he was your only hope. He was all you had. And now he's coming back. Not, not a happy thought for these people. And, and their response is right there in verse, uh, in verse 37. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? It's, it's the question that you ask when you realize that everything you've been living for and putting your hope in is, is false. When you, when you realize that, that your God is hollow and empty <coughs> and that you've completely missed it your entire life. It's this terrible recognition that, you've, that you have, have been rejecting God. And he's coming back and you ask in despair, what shall we do? What do we do? Imagine someone who has, has put, put, put their hope put their energy into their own philosophies and their own ideas and they spend all of their time just thinking and blogging and reading and, and, and that's where their hope is in, in these sort of philosophies. One of, one of the challenging things when we re read like the idols passages in the Old Testament is we don't, we don't live in a culture anymore where we literally make physical idols. You know, we don't like build a statue and say, that is God, right? But we build philosophies and say, that is God. We build thought processes, we build, we, we think, we, we, we create ideas, and it's, it's still man-made idols. It's still something that, that we have created, and then what we're doing is we begin in some fashion, even though we don't call it worship, we're worshiping that. But what are we doing? We're worshiping something we have created, right? which means we're worshiping ourselves. So, I mean, imagine, you've, you've completely just put all of your energy and your focus in, and, and into, into philosophies and thoughts, and then you're, you're lying on your deathbed. Where is your God now? Or imagine you've, you've uh, found your, your hope, your fulfillment in sex, worshiping at the altar of sex. And it's been your Lord, it's been controlling you, it's what make, it, it, it guides you in decision making and thinking and planning. It's your, uh, it's your Christ, it's your Messiah, it's your hope, in that it's, 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 it's where you go for, for enjoyment, it's where you go for hope, it's where you go to feel better, 
and you, you're worshiping it more and more and more, and, and the deeper you get into perversion, the more you realize it's absolutely hollow and empty, and at some point you just, you're tired, and you're like, what shall we do? What's next? I mean, my God is empty. There's nothing there. I've been seeking, I've been pouring all, every bit of, I, of who I am into this, and I've found that there is nothing in this. In no way is it going to make me happy. Another, another God that we, that we create for ourselves is each other, people. You're worshiping at the altar of people, trying to find your hope and your satisfaction in other people. And this is one that can creep in on us in your spouse, in your parents, in your friends, in, in, in your kids, in, in anybody. You, there's, you're, you're looking at, at this people, this person, this people group, a church, whatever that may be, and, and you are seeking everything, every bit of fulfillment, every bit of satisfaction in them. And, and you are left disappointed every time. Every time. People always disappoint you. They never can satisfy. They can never be, you can never be intimate enough. And I don't just mean sexually, but just emotionally and just connecting with, you can never connect enough. And you're always left with this sort of hollow feeling when it comes to what we might call community. And then at some point, you recognize that you have been seeking your hope and your fulfill fulfillment in a shallow and hollow God. And, that, and, and you have been rejecting Christ as, as that hope, as that fulfillment. And I'm, and I'm speaking too to, I'm not just talking about unchristians. I'm speaking to people who, you, you've considered yourself a Christian. You said a prayer at one time and you've, you uh, have bought the Jesus ticket out of hell and you do some Christian events, yet nothing else in your life really has anything to do with Jesus. You are, you're not finding Jesus as your very source of hope and joy and fulfillment in, in any other place in your life. And you're living as, as one author calls it, you're living as a Christian atheist. He's there, I mean, you have the, the right belief system, but it's absolutely unpractical for you. It means nothing for you. Here, here, here is how I believe um, we, can, we can say, along with these thousands of people, we can rightly say, yes, I crucified Christ. It's, it's the fact that you have denied Jesus as your whole source of satisfaction and fulfillment and you have found a God elsewhere. You've committed the same crime that put Jesus on the cross. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the world did not know Him, the world did not recognize Him, and the world snuffed Him out. And the, the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is this, is at what point... At what point will we, will, will, we, will we, stuttering, will you be cut to the heart? The very source of your being, the, the core of your soul, 
your emotions? At what point will this sort of truth, this spear of truth just completely jam you and, and wound you and open you up to where you recognize how, how far you really are from the cross? I, I was uh, listening to, do you guys ever listen uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones? Any Martin Lloyd-Jones fans out there? Huh? No? Does anybody even know who Martin Lloyd-Jones is? Um, he is uh, one of my favorite preachers from the 50s in London, I believe. Um, but I was listening to one of his sermons, and, and one thing that he said that just really caught me was, uh, he said the, um, the, the truth of, of your God can be known when all of your abilities have left you. Something along those lines. It, like it's fine, for instance, it's fine when you're young to say, to, uh, quote unquote fine, it's fine when you're young. It's easy, I should say, when you're young and you have abilities and you have money and you have a job and all this kind of stuff to be able to find, try to find hope in things like your looks or sex or other people or your friends or your job or your studies or um, your travels, whatever that may be. But the test of your quote-unquote God, the test of that God really comes when you've lost all of that. Where is your God then? <coughs> Which is why I said a little bit ago, you're lying on your deathbed. You've lost You've lost your ability. You, you can't even enjoy your friends anymore because you're in too much pain. You can't work. You can't travel anymore. You can't hang out. You can't eat. Where is your God then? Where, where, are, you, where are you trying to find God? And if it's any place other than in Christ, then what we're doing is we're committing the crime that led to Christ's crucifixion and we're crucifying him. We may be, with our lips, we may be confessing him, but we are absolutely rejecting him as our, as our Lord, as our ruler, and as our Savior, as our only hope. And that's what cuts your heart. That's the spear that, that jams you and opens you up. When you realize that you crucified Christ, you killed Christ, and the question that they ask, and it's the question that we ask then at that point, is, is what shall we do? What shall we do? It's the same question that Paul asked when he was traveling down the road, of, uh, the Damascus road, and, and Christ appears to him. You know this? In, in Acts chapter 9, we're going to get there eventually. Christ appears to Paul and, and looks at him. He's like, Paul, or Saul at, the, at that time. Saul, why? Why? What, you're, you're, you're completely just persecuting me. You're, you're forgetting me. You're, you're crucifying me. You're, you're ignoring me. You're rejecting me. And, and Paul, Saul at the time, when he, when he is convicted in this way, it's the sorrow, it's guilt, it's, uh, it's a willingness now to yield to, to the Lord. He asks the question, what shall we do? What shall I do? It's the same question that the jailer asked in Acts 16, which we will eventually get there, like way down in the future. Acts 16, the jailer says, what, what do we do? What do I do to be saved? It's a question that, that comes with this apprehension of, of danger, uh, 
that, that you have killed him and that he's still alive and by the way he's coming back this guilt that you have you've, you've ridded the world of your only hope you've ridded your world of your only hope the sense of sorrow but it's also a question I think I believe and when we see this here with, with the 3,000 it's a question that indicates that you are completely ready to yield to whatever that answer is. And you might not know. You might not know what the answer is. But they say sometimes the questions are more important, right? Verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now, um, you, a lot of people will take this verse and sort of tweak it and really like, bring a lot of harm to the gospel. In no way does, does baptism bring about forgiveness of sins any more than repentance does. Those are two works and not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he saved us. Right? Uh, here is the good news is that on, on the cross as, as you rejected Christ and, and put him on the cross that very rejection, during that very rejection, as a result of that very rejection, Christ then absorbed the rejection of God on your behalf. Think about that. As you rejected Christ, Christ absorbed the rejection of God on your behalf. And, and flowing from the cross then, from, from the love on the cross, comes forgiveness for that very rejection the rejection of God as we've been rejecting him our entire lives in, in, in our, our choices the way we live our lives just our, our thinking we're, we're constantly rejecting God the more the more I read the Bible and the more I journey with Christ the more I realize areas of my life where I'm rejecting God do you guys ever feel like that like I am so depraved it's ridiculous I'm like even this morning I was like God I'm like really just I'm screwed up you know I am in such need of grace. And it's, it's that very rejection, as we rejected Christ is, on the cross, is, is when he absorbed the rejection of God. And flowing from that then is this love and forgiveness, which leads us then to these two things, to, to repentance and, and baptism, which for, for these folks right here, baptism is this, this very physical, outward symbol for all of Jerusalem at the time to see that they are getting on board with this Jesus thing. That we have crucified our Lord. We've crucified the hope of our nation. We've crucified the hope of our fathers and our children. We've crucified the ruler. We've crucified God and he has forgived, forgiven us and we're getting on board with that. And, and baptism is this, this picture of that. It's the symbol of that deeper baptism that happens and repentance is this, this disgust of sin. Repentance is so much more than just maybe a change of mind or, or uh, just trying to do better. Repentance is this deep disgust that we have when we recognize the, the, the grievous nature of our sin. And I don't just mean the sin of like, oh man, I lied today. You know, like, you guys ever... Here's kind of the trouble with repentance is, is like, so we can go, kind of get to the end of our day and uh, 
And if you, if you actually sit there and try to like confess your sins at the end of the day, most of us would be like, man, I, I like, was pretty good today, you know? I didn't really sin. Like I was um, a little lazy um, getting up this morning. Uh, we'll call that a sin. Um, I only spent 15 minutes in the scriptures today, so it wasn't enough time, we'll call it. You know, but for the most part, a lot of us, and, and, and I'm not, some of you guys, you're like, well, you don't know my life. You know, like every day is just like craziness. And uh, one of my challenges, I guess, this is just me talking, is that I get through, through my days often and, I'm, and I, I can almost go through my own sort of righteousness. You know, I can almost like kind of get through and fudge it and, and start to believe that I'm really a pretty decent, pretty decent person. And repentance is, is so much more than, than just feeling bad for the lie that you told a little bit ago or feeling bad for sleeping with her, this girl, or feeling bad with this or that. You know, it's, it's so much more than these just like single acts of sin. It's, it's sort of like this deeper understanding when we realize the sin beneath the sin. We realize why we're sinning. We realize why we're constantly doing whatever we feel like. We realize why we're not reading the scriptures as much or we are not praying as much or why we're not feeling like, like we can tell the truth to somebody. It's, it's, repentance is when we realize that we are rejecting God in Christ. When, we're, when we realize that we are not embracing our soul hope and satisfaction and enjoyment and fulfillment in Jesus Christ and we're, we're seeking to find God elsewhere. That's Repentance. And it's this, it's this disgust, yet it's this readiness to turn and to bear the fruit of repentance and to be a new person and to change. Is there anyone here who, who has been pretending? Who's been uh, a Christian? You call yourself a Christian. You've, you've been doing the Christian thing. You've been doing Christian activity. Uh, you even spend time in prayer maybe sometimes or Bible reading sometimes. Yet, you're, you're, you're embracing God. And when I say God, I'm, I'm, what I'm saying, your, your very core of existence, your hope, what you long for, where you find happiness, where you find joy and fulfillment, where you find meaning. You're embracing God in entertainment, in people, in friends, in stuff, in education. And the list could go on. And, and what, you're, what you've been realizing is that all of these gods are so shallow and so empty and you are so tired of pursuing these things. You're so tired of trying to find your meaning and satisfaction there. You're tired of it. You're tired of trying to find satisfaction in people because people keep disappointing you. You're tired of trying to find satisfaction in relationships and in, 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 in uh, entertainment and in, in, in your education and in, in your job. Whatever that might mean for you. You're tired of it. And you're asking the question, what shall we do? And you're recognizing that it begins with this disgust of your sin, repentance, turning, looking at the cross. And it's time to begin like outwardly showing your, your faith in Christ for what it truly is in a very authentic and real way.
Is there anyone here who has been consciously and intentionally rejecting God in Christ? Like it's not a subconscious thing for you, but you're just like, I, I hear it, but I'm just, I'm not getting it. I, I'm, I can't, I'm not going to do it. You're, you might be in the category of folks who, um, who didn't say, what shall we do? But your, your response is more the mocking side. You, more, you resonate with those, with those folks more. And under the banner of intellectualism or under the banner of all churches are screwed up or all Christians are hypocrites or whatever banner we put over top of this, for whatever reason you're rejecting God in Christ, the core of it, and I'm just throwing this out as a, as a, as a possibility, is it, is it possible that at the core it's really simply the fact that you don't want Christ to be Lord? Because you want to be Lord. You don't want Christ to be your Savior because you're still wanting to find Savior in other things, salvation in other things, hope, fulfillment. Is it possible? Is it possible that, he, that, that God is, is penetrating your heart and he's opening you up and he's, he's wounding you in such a way to where even now you might be asking, what shall we do? And it's time to, to turn to Christ and, and, and say, God, I, I don't quite get it. I don't quite understand it all. I struggle with faith. I, I struggle with Christians. I struggle with the church. I struggle with a lot of things in, in here. But God, in faith, I, I, I'm seeing it. I'm feeling it. I'm reading it. And I'm going to believe it. And it's this turning as, as, as God opens your eyes to the truth of the gospel. The, the good news of the good news is this. Is that this Christ who you have crucified, the ruler of this world, the savior of this world, who you put to death, he is alive and he's coming back, but he's not angry with you. He's, he's in love, absolutely in love with you. And he wants you to love him more. He wants you to find your hope, find your fulfillment, find your satisfaction in him because it's only in him. It's only, it's not in people, it's not in other things. Everything else will fail you. It's only in Christ that we will find a foundation that will never fail us, a hope that will never let us down. And in verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Amen? Let's pray. God, we confess that we have indeed forgotten you. We've, we've, we've mocked you. We have uh, sought you elsewhere with complete disregard for Christ. And we have thereby, thereby crucified Jesus. We, we repent. We're disgusted by our sin, by how often we, we forget you, forget your love, forget your grace, your forgiveness for us, of how often we place other things as, as our Lord and Christ. 
as our ruler and as our hope. But God, today we turn to you. We ask that you open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to continue to be receptive to Jesus Christ and the gospel. We give ourselves to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.